Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. On today's episode, I'm joined by Pele Brandgard, who is co-founder and CEO of Notabene. We'll discuss something called the travel rule and how this regulation is changing the crypto industry. We also talk about consumer protection, private wallets, and the Sunrise Challenge. Please note, Notabene is a Chainalysis partner. And if you enjoy the content in this podcast, then you should absolutely join us in person May 18th and 19th for the Chainalysis Lynx Conference in New York City. We'll bring together leaders and experts from all parts of the cryptocurrency ecosystem for beginner to advanced content on DeFi, NFTs, Web3, crypto crime, compliance, and risk management. To register, visit the URL linked in the show notes. And now, on to my discussion with Pele. Fascinating guest, Pele Rangard, uh, CEO of Notabene, is joining us today. Pele, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you just landed on a flight from the U.S. back to Europe, so we will uh, not try and pepper you with any super hard questions, but maybe a softball even to start. I personally fascinated with people's crypto origin story, how you got into crypto. In your case, my other big fascination is founding origin stories. So people that start companies, to me, I I could listen for hours to that topic. Maybe uh, in your case, we have a crypto and a company origin story all in one. How did you come to crypto and how did you decide to found Motivene? Great. Yeah, thanks a lot. So I got into crypto back when crypto meant cryptography. So back in the in the 90s, as part of the cyberpunk movement back then, I was very interested in really all aspects of, of the cyberpunk movement, but uh, particular financial applications for it. So I had a startup in, from uh, about 98 to 2000 called Corkflow, where we were working on doing company registration via using financial cryptography, using digital signatures and yeah. what people nowadays call tokens, those kinds wow. of things. And right before we were gonna, going to launch, the uh, government of Anguilla in the Caribbean, who we were working with on this, had received new guidelines from the UK for KYC. And all of a sudden, we had to KYC our customers. And in the year 2000, it was pretty much impossible to do online KYC follow, follow the rules. So we had to really give it up. So this is kind of the origin story about why yeah. uh, I, I got really in, into regulatory compliance because, well, it affected, <laughs> affected my company. And um, I spent some time in, in banking and, and start other kind of startups since then, and then went back into Bitcoin when, uh, well, back into crypto when early on. So 2010, launched my first company in this space in 12, Kipochi, which was Bitcoin for Sub-Saharan Africa. And yet again, we ran into issues with issues with regulators. And uh, another one of my co-founders has similar stories. So we, you know, we've gone through this. We felt the pain around this. But there were a bunch of things that weren't that were really missing to be able to solve the regulatory compliance issues. So um, Joe Lubin from Consensus asked me to to figure out how do we build identity assigned identity map into blockchain transactions. And so we spent a lot of time, well, four years building, four or five years building Newports. And that's where I met my founding team. And Newport is just really, how do you, it's a protocol for mapping identity data 
privately to public blockchain data. Then when FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, came out with their first, the first version of their guidelines for virtual assets or crypto in 2019, we were actually quite excited by some of the requirements, what this meant for the crypto industry. The new requirements were really needed to get crypto into mainstream. I mean, really into mainstream, not just people investing, but using it for paying for coffee, paying salaries, all of these kinds of things. So this is, we were excited to attack the travel rule, which is one of the key aspects of it, which is really all about counterparty verification. So uh, our team, my founding team, there are four of us, we, we started Nota Bene then, so about two years ago. You know, it's, it's interesting. I joined Chainalysis January of, of 2020. Uh, so I think really just as you all were getting going, and I also started my career in the early 2000s, I worked quite a bit on the U.S. Department of Defense public key infrastructure as they were rolling out certificate, digital certificates for identity verification and, and email signing and encryption. And so that comment about I've been in crypto since it meant cryptography, not cryptocurrency. I can appreciate that at a personal level. But when I got to Chainalysis at the beginning of last year, everybody was talking about this thing called the travel rule. And I've had this experience kind of, I wake up every day and I learn about something that I didn't know existed yesterday. And so I've got this habit of you know writing down words and then Googling them later so that I don't go to my next meeting looking like I don't know what I'm talking about. Travel rule was one of the first ones that I wrote down. Because it's not intuitive, the name. At first, I was like, is this some sort of like, if I want to travel with with my Trezor or my Ledger wallet, like cross-border, I'm supposed to report it? That didn't seem right. So maybe you could give us sort of the, the highlights of what did that 2019 guidance from the Financial Action Task Force describe and, and what is contained in this thing that I think we colloquially call the travel rule? Good question. And I agree, the travel rule is really the worst possible name for what this is. The travel rule is a, and I'm, you know, we are a travel rule service provider and I wish we didn't have to, we, we could move on to another term than travel rule. But the travel rule is, is really a set of rules that comes from traditional payments, from traditional banking. It's actually known as, also known as FATF's wire transfer rule, recommendation 16. And banks have implemented this for many years. And it's really about giving financial institutions the tools to collaborate together to verify each other's customers. So it's, it's about verifying the, the counterparty to a transaction. And this is true whether it's via SWIFT or whether it's a USDC transaction or, or Bitcoin. People sometimes misunderstand like this idea with the travel. I mean, it's called the travel rule because there's some information that in theory travels along with the transaction. Honestly, I have no idea who came up with the name. It just doesn't make sense <laughs> sense at all. So it's not but, a digital passport for my digital assets. We can kind of take that off the board. It's much yeah, more about information yeah. going along with the transaction so that the participants of the transaction kind of understand the counterparty. Is that is that a fair way to summarize? Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, naming things is hard. I think in this time, the uh, the performance may have been uh, even even less uh, successful than in other cases. Now, like I mentioned, I've been hearing about travel rule from all around the world, pretty much constantly. You launched the company kind of in response to that uh, that new guidance from FATF in nineteen. Tell us a bit about Nota Bene today. How big's the team? Who are you working with? I get the sense you're you're everywhere at this point, from what I see online. 
Yeah, we are. We are currently. Let's see how many people we are now. Twenty six people, and um, we're growing. We're hiring. Notabene.id slash jobs. Please have a look if if you're interested to join an exciting new company. We're a very global team. We're fully remote. Solving the travel was an international problem. So by default, we've always been international. So we have team members everywhere from US to Singapore to Europe, South America. And and that's really also where our customers are. They're pretty much all over the world. So they're about third APAC, third EMEA, third Americas. And that's roughly how we're going to see the industry going forward, we believe. We focused on something slightly different than most other players in the space, uh, in the travel rule space initially. We felt that travel rule, even though it's it seems like a technical spec, this is what you, you're supposed to transmit these data fields to another exchange. There's a whole bunch of different operational issues and product changes and com- new compliance tasks that you have to do to implement the travel rule. So, so the technical aspect of it was actually a fairly minor thing. And most of the industry has been focusing on that, on that part. So there are various competing ways or protocols sending payment messages along. But to be able to implement any of them, there's so many things that you have to do as a VASP. And that's really where we've been focused on from the beginning. Travel rules switch, a universal travel rule switch or gateway, if you will, where you can just send a single transaction to We figure out how to apply rules whatever rules integrate with chain analysis, perform sanction screening, send the message to the counterparty and, and really make it operational. But that so that's where our big focus is and that's why we have a lot of, of companies that are that are live with us today uh, processing travel rule transactions. Where many of the technical protocols, they were very focused in, in different levels of technical weeds and not really on the operational aspects. So it, it's become very difficult for them to go live in many cases. Oh, I have I have a bunch of questions here. So our listeners and I understand this clearly. Fatif said to everybody that's considered a virtual asset service provider or a VASP that for most transactions above a certain threshold, anytime a digital asset is transferred out of one VASP to another VASP, that counterparty information needs to be recorded and shared alongside the transfer. Is that is that a reasonable summary? Did I miss anything there? That's the technical implementation from it, but yeah. that doesn't really cover the reason why they want you to do that. And I think this is where a lot of people miss out on. The travel rule gives the VASP the tools to be able to, first of all, perform proper record keeping so they, they can answer law enforcement requests in the future. Uh, secondly, sanction screen counterparties, like the name, not just the blockchain address, but the actual name, which wasn't really possible before. So that's that's the primary reason for for the travel rule but that it exists. It's really about giving the VASP the tools to perform those tasks. And when we talk about sanction screening and ultimately taking a risk-based approach to compliance, you will have to take action in some cases and, and stop a transaction from happening, which is, of course, where Chainalysis also sits and helps companies make those decisions as well. But now there, we add a few additional parameters part for that. So to implement the travel rule and allow both sides to be able to actually screen the counterparties, manage whatever their internal risk procedure is, travel rule has to happen before a blockchain t- transaction takes place to implement it correctly. So this has some challenges for, for the industry to do because it's not something you can just send along with the transaction. And that's actually where my next question was going. So thanks for clarifying on the 
the value of the travel rule, it seems like the coordination of this information sharing is a pretty hard problem, right? I mean, I as a marketer, I live every day with the reality of, of GDPR and you know, kind of the approach that all companies now have to take to what I would consider basic personal information. You know, things like interactions with cookies. In your case, the information Nota Bene is touching is is a whole nother category, right? It's, it's association to account ownership, it's a financial transaction record. So I would imagine, and it changes the workflow that happens. As you just said, it, it actually, this exchange of information needs to happen before a blockchain transaction is executed. So I would imagine it requires a little bit of a rethink of a withdrawal deposit process for participating VASPs. Is that, is that an accurate guess? Yes, it definitely does require some changes. And there's been attempts at industry, various initiatives to be able to not change the flow at all. But it's difficult to do. The other point besides it, it being difficult to do, if you are exchanging PII or personal identifying information of your customer to another exchange, I think it's only in the spirit of GDPR, it's important to actually ask your customer, are you okay with this, right? So hiding it away is not actually a good idea. I believe we also strongly feel like travel rule, as, as mentioned, is about counterparty verification. And it was designed to give the vast the tools. But as a side effect, it actually also gives the end users some additional benefits. Mm-hmm. So with, with the travel rule, I'd say I'm sending to my son on his Coinbase account, for example, and I can see and verify that it's actually going to him and not a random blockchain address. This is one of the, the things that I, I sometimes feel a little bit embarrassed about saying this because I've been in crypto for so long. Every time I enter a blockchain transaction into an exchange withdrawal form or into you know my ledger, my ledger nano or something like that, I'm scared. It's completely terrifying. And I've been using Bitcoin for more than 10 years and it terrifies me every time. So if we can kind of humanize that, I actually think there's some real UX benefits here for end users. And we also start opening up crypto to a whole new set of of use cases that we didn't really have before. Completely agree. I have that same moment of trepidation anytime I'm sending anything, even small dollar amounts, because it's just so... You know, looking at one address versus another, did I copy it onto the clipboard correctly from the whoever sent me the request for the funds? Like that entire process seems just fraught with errors. And we, we've seen this in chain analysis data, like the dollar volume around frauds and scams, so much of which is predicated on this, you know, authorize the wrong smart contract or deposit to an address that you think is one thing and it turns out to be another thing. The opportunity for UX improvements there is huge. I hadn't really thought about travel rule in this context. And so the idea is that when I'm requesting a withdrawal from uh, an account on an exchange, I can specify where I think it's going. And then via a solution like Nota Bene's, the VASP is actually able to verify that, in fact, where I've said I think it's going is where I've asked to send it to. They're kind of matching the identity and the address on the back end and doing some validation. Yeah, exactly. So, so we actually use Chainalysis as part of our Chainalysis integration. We check with Chainalysis first to see if Chainalysis knows the address. But as you know, with if, if it's a fresh address, it, there's there's no knowledge about it, right? But if it is a known address, then we pull that in. There's no need to ask the customer, but we can still show it to the customer. 
So he has that additional benefit there. And if it's self-reported, then the travel rule process verifies it. So after the travel rule, after the, the beneficiary VASP has said, yes, this is indeed our address and this is indeed the beneficiary name of the account holder, then it's been verified as long as you trust the counterparty VASP, which is a big if. That's why there's a new due diligence requirement as well for the travel rule. So that actually sounds awesome. I wish I had that feature tomorrow. And I, I've got accounts on lots of exchanges just for research purposes. And I've not experienced this feature anywhere. So my next question is sort of like, a, uh, you know, we're two years on from the original digital asset guidance from the FATF. And I know there's a trickle down process once they issue a recommendation for each of the member countries to adopt and implement in their jurisdiction. You know, where are we globally in terms of adoption of the travel rule? And are there any jurisdictions that are doing particularly well that people can kind of look at and say, oh, this is a great model that we should, we should try and adopt more widely? It's a good question. So a lot has happened in the last six months. So we okay. ran a survey in uh, Q4, the state of the travel rule uh, report. And I, I recommend anyone can go to our website and download a copy of it to get a really good insight into a lot of the problems around the travel rule. Perfect. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can find that. If you listen. Ah, fantastic. And um, we we surveyed, I think it was around 60 different VASPs who provided their plans for when they were going to go live. And within Q1 and Q2, the majority of them said that they were planning on rolling out the travel rule. I think it may have been a little bit optimistic in some cases because it is there's a little bit more work you have to do to implement it. But we can see it that it's it's yeah. mostly right. Maybe maybe just delayed by a few months. But we definitely see a lot of activity here in Q2. We, we already have lots of asks interacting. Uh, we do transactions between, um, I think, I looked at the metrics yesterday. Uh, we were doing transactions between 70, 80 VASPs last week. And so it's growing. It's getting there. There are a couple of areas, though, that we're still looking at. I, I believe we're the most successful solution at the moment in actually reaching counterparty VASPs. So right now, we, we have a 68% of travel rule transfers actually gets to the, uh, to the beneficiary VASP. That doesn't necessarily mean they all respond to them yet. But 59% on our platform of travel rule transfers over the last month have received a response from the counterparty. And when I say a response, it's they have verified that the blockchain address is theirs. They've confirmed that the beneficiary name matches or they have rejected it because either of those two were incorrect. And I'm glad to see rejections. Rejections doesn't sound nice and happy, but it actually means that that the process is working, uh, which is fantastic. No, that's amazing. Uh, so, yeah. so that's yeah. two out of every three transactions they're hitting your platform or receiving a response. That That's actually quite a bit higher than I realized. Uh, that That's going to feel like tremendous progress. Yeah, it's 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 really great. And uh, another interesting point is that I mean we spend a lot of time doing reach out to large beneficiary VASPs, and we have VASPs integrating all over the world, even in countries without a strict travel rule requirement yet. 
And some of the bass that respond and do a good job are actually large bass that, again, they don't have that requirement just yet. So for example, everyone asks, what's Binance doing? For example, Binance actually responds to roughly 100% of transactions from our customers. And they do a great job on it. They reject wrong beneficiary names, wrong addresses. They actually implement it correctly. We have the data to prove that. So I'm really excited to see to see that. Of course, they're not the only one, but this is one that everyone's everyone's always worried about. So we are we're helping a lot of exchanges implement if they have if they have the requirement themselves. That's when it's more most urgent to roll out. We have ASP in Canada, US, Europe, APAC sending actively sending transactions today, and we we've really taken a very proactive way of getting out, making sure beneficiaries understand what they should do, how to respond to it. And, and we're really hoping to get to a over 90 success rate, response rate by the end of the year. Well, that, that's amazing progress. And I, I guess thinking about it, it, you know, given the distribution of transaction volume, there's a handful of exchanges that drive an outsized amount of, of volume. You mentioned one of them. There's probably two or three others that account for sort of very large portion of transactions I have to imagine once they standardize on this, at some point they make it a requirement and then the long tail who've maybe not invested the time or effort in into supporting the travel rule, they have no choice but to adopt, right? Once you've you've kind of gotten the, the bulk of the market, it becomes a de facto uh, requirement just to participate in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the intention also of FATF and the national regulators who are who are implementing it is that that it is a requirement for BAS to do this, and if it is a requirement for BAS to implement it, then BAS in other jurisdictions they either have to implement it regardless of what their own jurisdiction says, or probably lose out on transaction volume. Yeah, you you become isolated at some point. So maybe on the other side of this, you know, there's a legislative blueprint that I think is winding its way through the European Parliament right now. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. It looks like to me as a layperson that they want to expand the scope of where travel rule is applied. Because I think today it's a few thousand euros or dollars, depending on the jurisdiction, where you need to send this accompanying information with transfers. It sounds like the European Parliament is aiming to have this applied to every transfer. Is that the correct interpretation? And kind of like, what's your what's your perspective yeah. on, on this approach? Yeah, it is what they are planning on doing. They're not the only country to have this. So Singapore, for example, already has a zero dollar threshold with some varying data requirements, but there are quite a few countries that are taking this approach. And from our customer's point of view, it's what we hear from most is that it's actually easier if it's the same process for all transactions. But is that that's not everyone's viewpoint. We we allow people to to really apply your local rules. But it is something to also think about that if you are implementing it, let's say you're in the US with a three thousand dollar limit, once the EU have this rule, you should really send the travel rule data along according to your beneficiaries regulation as well. There's some disagreement on that, but just looking at, at most national rules, that's what you would have to what you would have so, to do. So if I'm set, if I'm based in the US transferring to you an account that you have hosted in within the EU region, my sending VASP would have to apply the destination threshold, which if EU passes the, the current proposed regulation would bring that down to zero effectively. 
even if the threshold in the U.S. is a three thousand uh, dollar minimum, they would be obliged to apply the the EU uh, level. That's how we see that the local regulators are taking would take this. We'll see if the reality of it, the practicality of of this, also takes out if it if it works that way as well. But we help companies kind of reconciliate the different rules to make it easy to figure out what you should and should not do. And we also help filter the PII so only the required PII gets sent along. Again, there are different countries have different requirements for what, what needs to be, be sent along. I was reading about some regulation that uh, FinTrack in Canada has rolled out, where I think they've applied this even more broadly because the the travel rule guidance from FATF in 2019 was between virtual asset service providers. It didn't touch on this topic of self-custody or unhosted wallets. But I think in Canada, it's now a requirement for any transaction, even if you're sending it to a a self-hosted wallet, the originating VASP is obliged to collect beneficiary information. Have I read that correctly? Yeah, I believe that's true. I would have to double check with our experts on that, but I, I believe that's true. That's also part of the new EU rules. And we believe the same thing will be required in the US. I mean, FinCEN has already already warned that this was going to be a requirement. Uh, FATF included that information as well. When it comes to unhosted wallets, it's a tricky thing because, you know, do you verify ownership or do you just collect but not verify ownership. And that's where different regulators have to take different stances on it. And I think it's really, regardless of what your regulator says, I think the right approach to do is take a risk-based approach to it. Use tools like Chainalysis to help to manage risk around it. We can help just within the exact same flow as you do travel rule. We can help also take a very quick, painless, cryptographic proof from your user's MetaMask wallet or, or some other wallet, for example, to also tie your customer to this this wallet that can allow you to verify first-party transactions to, to unhosted wallets. And really, that together with chain analysis just lowers the risk. And, and we don't really see much of a risk with unhosted wallet with those two aspects together. So for the, the layperson maybe listening in, so the idea would be for wallets that have obvious exposure to risky or illicit activity or, or in the worst case, something like sanctions, you would just sort of block that transfer out of hand. But for a wallet that appears to be trustworthy or you have no information on it, then you're, you're likely processing that transaction through. You'd allow it to proceed. Shifting gears a little bit, you know, I I hear uh, about your company and solution sort of synonymously with travel rule, but I know in certain jurisdictions, there's been kind of regional coalitions that have been uh, launched sometimes as an industry group has gotten together and said, hey, we're going to tackle the travel rule in in other cases, maybe some competing technology vendors. At the top of the podcast, you described Notabene is a, a universal switch or a routing function. I've got to think this interoperability between groups who are, are taking slightly different technical approaches is one of the big challenges to solve because we want everybody able to exchange information. Every participant in the system needs to be able to talk to every other participant. How have you all tackled that? I'm curious how you've come to this problem and, and if there's a good solution out there. Yeah, it, it's a 
complicated issue to solve. So our initial vision was that we we would just be protocol agnostic. So we have essentially an abstraction within our system for dealing with all the different potential states of a travelable t- transaction. And that can be mapped easily to all the different protocols. So from a technical level, it's relatively simple to do. I think the more complex part, particularly with some of the more regional groups, is that a lot of them have taken the approach of closed networks. Uh, so it's very much a closed membership. I mean, we, we work with them and, and we'll happily help them get interoperable. But we think it goes a little bit against kind of the open nature and history and philosophy of crypto to have closed networks. We always prefer to push for open protocols, open standards, you know, ways of interacting together. There's also large philosophical differences between many of these protocols. Many of them have taken different stances on what's really important to them as a protocol. I've been working with identity standards and protocols, those kinds of things, outside of travel rule for, for many years. And you often see that there's one group that the most important thing is this. The other group, the most important thing is that, right? And that can sometimes cause a few clashes. So for, so for example, there are, there are some protocols that require you to prove you own a blockchain address because it is a very, very important thing, according to the designers of these protocols, to be able to safely uh, reach the counterparty. Uh, reach the beneficiary that they can prove that this is their blockchain address. But it's it's a difficult, actually, thing to do in practice. And the question is, why is this an important requirement if you perform due diligence? So none of the regulators actually require this. So these are some of the things that happen that people get really bogged into a beautiful technical uh, solution to problems that may not always exist. Fascinating. I would imagine your team is working hard on solving all these problems. We're out of time, but... Pele, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, the state of regulatory affairs, the travel rule, and everything else your team's working on? Go to notabene.id and you can find everything about the travel rule there. Terrific. We'll post that in the show notes. And thanks so much for all your time today. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe via your preferred podcast listening platform. Reviews and sharing to your friends and colleagues is also appreciated. Thank you again to our friends at Notabene for their continued partnership, and specifically to CEO Pella Brandgard for joining me on today's episode. Finally, I hope you'll join us in person May 18th and 19th for the Chainalysis Links Conference in New York City. To register, visit the URL linked in the show notes.